Chapter Sixteen of An Old Man's Love by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mrs. Baggett's Philosophy. The next day was Saturday, and Mr. Whittlestaff came out of his room early, intending to speak to Mrs. Baggett. He had declared to himself that it was his purpose to give her some sound advice respecting her own affairs, as far as her affairs and his were connected together. But low down in his mind, below the stratum in which his declared resolution was apparent to himself, there was a hope that he could get from her some comfort and strength as to his present purpose. Not but that he would ultimately do as he himself had determined, but, to tell the truth, he had not quite determined, and thought that a word from Mrs. Baggett might assist him. As he came out from his room, he encountered Mary, intent upon her household duties. It was something before her usual time, and he was surprised. She had looked ill overnight and worn, and he had expected that she would keep her bed. "'What makes you so early, Mary?' He spoke to her with his softest and most affectionate tone. "'I couldn't sleep, and I thought I might as well be up.' She had followed him into the library, and when there he put his arm round her waist and kissed her forehead. It was a strange thing for him to do. She felt that it was so, very, very strange, but it never occurred to her that it behoved her to be angry at his caress. He had kissed her once before, and only once, and it had seemed to her that he had intended that their love-making should go on without kisses. But was she not his property to do as he pleased with her? And there could be no ground for displeasure on her part. "'Dear Mary,' he said, "'if you could only know how constant my thoughts are to you.' She did not doubt that it was so but just so constant were her thoughts to John Gordon. But from her to him there could be no show of affection, nothing but the absolute coldness of perfect silence. She had passed the whole evening with him last night, and had not been allowed to speak a single word to him beyond the ordinary greetings of society. She had felt that she had not been allowed to speak a single word to anyone, because he had been present. Mr. Whittlestaff had thrown over her the deadly mantle of his ownership, and she had consequently felt herself to be debarred from all right over her own words and actions. She had become his slave. She felt herself in very truth to be a poor creature whose only duty it was in the world to obey his volition. She had told herself during the night that, with all her motives for loving him, she was learning to regard him with absolute hatred. And she hated herself because it was so. Oh, what a tedious affair was this of living! How tedious, how sad and miserable must be her future days, as long as days should be left to her! Could it be made possible to her that she should ever be able to do her duty by this husband of hers? for her in whose heart of hearts would be seated continually the image of this other man? "'By the by,' said he, "'I want to see Mrs. Baggett.' 
I suppose she is about somewhere. Oh, dear, yes. Since the trouble of her husband has become nearer, she is earlier and earlier every day. Shall I send her? Then she departed, and in a few minutes Mrs. Baggett entered the room. Come in, Mrs. Baggett. Yes, sir. I have just a few words which I want to say to you. Your husband has gone back to Portsmouth? Yes, sir, he have. This she said in a very decided tone, as though her master needed trouble himself no further about her husband. I am very glad that it should be so. It's the best place for him, unless he could be sent to Australia. He ain't done nothing to fit himself for Botany Bay, Mr. Whittlestaff, said the old woman, bobbing her head at him. I don't care what place he has fitted himself for, so long as he doesn't come here. He is a disreputable old man. You needn't be so hard upon him, Mr. Whittlestaff. He ain't a done nothing much to you, barring sleeping in the stable one night when he had a drop of drink too much. And the old woman pulled out a great handkerchief and began to wipe her eyes piteously. What a fool you are, Mrs. Baggett. Yes, I am a fool. I knows that. Here's this disreputable old man eating and drinking your hard-earned wages. But they are my wages, and who's a right to them? Only he. I don't say anything about that. Only he comes here and disturbs you. Well, yes, he is disturbing. If it's only because of his wooden leg and red nose. I don't mean to say as he's the sort of a man as does a credit to a gentleman's house to see about the place. But he was my lot in matrimony, and I've got to put up with him. I ain't a-going to refuse to bear the burden which came to be my lot. I don't suppose he's earned a single shilling since he left the regiment, and that is hard upon a poor woman who's got nothing but her wages. Now look here, Mrs. Baggett. Yes, sir. Send him your wages. And have to go in rags myself, in your service? You won't go in rags. Don't be a fool. I am a fool, Mr. Whittlestaff. You can't tell me that too often. You won't go in rags. You ought to know us well enough. Who is us, Mr. Whittlestaff? They ain't no us just yet. Well, me. Yes, I know you, Mr. Whittlestaff. Send him your wages. You may be quite sure that you'll find yourself provided with shoes and stockings and the rest of it. And be a voluntary burden beyond what I earns? Never. Not as long as Miss Mary is coming to live here as missus of your house. I should do some at as I should have to repent of. But, Mr. Whittlestaff, I've got to look the world in the face and bear my own crosses. I never can do it no younger. You're an old woman now, and you talk of throwing yourself upon the world without the means of earning a shilling? I think I'd earn some at something, old as I am, till I fell down flat dead, she said. I have that spirit in me that I'd still be doing something. But it don't signify. I'm not going to remain here when Miss Mary is to be put over me. That's the long and the short of it all. 
now had come the moment in which if ever mr whittlestaff must get the strength which he required he was quite sure of the old woman that her opinion would not be in the least influenced by any desire on her own part to retain her position as his housekeeper i don't know about putting miss mary over you he said don't know about it she shouted my mind is not absolutely fixed has she said anything not a word or he has he been and dared to speak up about miss mary and he who as far as i can understand has never done a hapworth for her since the beginning what's mr gordon i should like to know diamonds what's diamonds in the way of a steady income they're all a flash in the pan and moonshine and dirtiness i hates to hear of diamonds there's all the ill in the world comes from them and you'd give her up to be taken off by such a one as he among the diamonds i make bold to tell you mr whittlestaff that you ought to have more strength of mind than what that comes to you're telling me every day as i'm an old fool so you are i never did contradict you nor i don't mean if you tells me so as often again and i don't mean to be that impudent as to tell my master as i ain't the only fool about the place it wouldn't be nowise becoming but you think it would be true i says nothing about that that's not the sort of language anybody has heard to come out of my mouth either before your face or behind your back but i do say as a man ought to behave like a man what give up to a chap as spends his time in digging for diamonds never what does it matter what he digs for you know nothing about his business but i know something about yours mr whittlestaff i know where you have set your wishes and i know that when a man has made up his mind in such an affair as this he shouldn't give way to any young diamond dealer of them all not to him and what she are you to give up everything because she's lovesick for a day or two is everything to be knocked to pieces here at croker's hall because he has come and made eyes at her she was glad enough to take what you offered before he had come this way she was not glad enough that is it she was not glad enough she took you at any rate and i'd never make myself mean enough to make way for such a fellow as that it isn't for him mrs baggett it is for him who else to walk away and just leave the game open because he has come down to hampshire there ain't no spirit of standing up and fighting about it with whom am i to fight with both of em till you have your own way a foolish stupid weak girl like that i won't have her abused she's very well i ain't to say nothing against her if she'll do what you bid her she'll turn out right enough you asked her and she said she'd do it is not that so there's nothing i hate so much as them romantic ways and everything is to be made to give way because a young chap is six foot high i hates romance and manly beauty as they call it and all the rest of it where is she to get her bread and meat 
That's what I want to know. There'll be bread and meat for her. I dare say, but you'll have to pay for it while she's philandering about with him. And that's what you call fine feelings? I call it all rubbish. If you've a mind to make her Mrs. Whittlestaff, make her Mrs. Whittlestaff. Trat them fine feelings. I never knew no good come of what people call fine feelings. If a young woman does her work as it should be, she's got no time to think of em. And if a man is master, he should be master. How's a man to give way to a girl like that, and then stand up and face the world around him? A man has to be master, and when he's come to be a little old-like, he has to see that he will be master. I never knew no good come of one of them soft-going fellows who is minded to give up whenever a woman wants anything. What's a woman? It ain't natural she should have her way, and she don't like a man a bit better in the long run because he lets her. There's Miss Mary. If you're stiff with her now, she'll come out right enough in a month or two. She's lived without Mr. Gordon well enough since she's been here. Now he's come and we hear a deal about these fine feelings. You take my word and say nothing to nobody about the young man. He's gone by this time, or he's a-going. Let him go, say I, and if Miss Mary take on to whimper a bit, don't you see it. Mrs. Baggett took her departure, and Mr. Whittlestaff felt that he had received the comfort, or at any rate the strength, of which he had been in quest. In all that the woman had said to him there had been a re-echo of his own thoughts, of one side at any rate of his own thoughts. He knew that true affection and substantial comforts of the world would hold their own against all romance and he did not believe, in his theory of ethics he did not believe, that by yielding to what Mrs. Baggett called fine feelings, he would in the long run do good to those with whom he was concerned in the world. Were he to marry Mary Laurie now, Mary Whittlestaff would, he thought, in ten years' time, be a happier woman than were he to leave her. That was the solid conviction of his mind and in that he had been strengthened by Mrs. Baggett's arguments. He had desired to be so strengthened, and therefore his interview had been successful. But as the minutes passed by, as every quarter of an hour added itself to the quarters that were gone, and as the hours grew on and the weakness of evening fell upon him, all his softness came back again. They had dined at six o'clock, and at seven he declared his purpose of strolling out by himself. On these summer evenings he would often take Mary with him. But now he told her, with a sort of apology, that he would rather go alone. Do, she said, smiling up into his face, don't let me ever be in your way. Of course a man does not always want to have to find conversation for a young lady. If you are the young lady, I should always want it only that I have things to think of. Go and think of your things. I will sit in the garden and do my stitching. About a mile distant, where the downs began to rise, there was a walk, supposed to be common to all who chose to frequent it, but which was entered through a gate which gave the place within the appearance of privacy. 
There was a little lake inside crowded with water lilies, when the time for the water lilies had come, and above the lake a path ran up through the woods very steep, and as it rose higher and higher, altogether sheltered. It was about a mile in length till another gate was reached, but during the mile the wanderer could go off on either side and lose himself on the grass among the beech trees. It was a favorite haunt with Mr. Whittlestaff. Here he was wont to sit and read his Horace, and think of the affairs of the world as Horace depicted them. Many a morsel of wisdom he had there made his own, and had then endeavored to think whether the wisdom had in truth been taken home by the poet to his own bosom, or had only been a glitter of the intellect, never appropriated for any useful purpose. Gamus marmor eber, he had said, sunt kinan habient, est kinan curat haber. I suppose he did care for jewels, marble, and ivory as much as any one. Me lentus glissere torrent armor mea. I don't suppose he ever loved her really, or any other girl. Thus he would think over his Horace, always having the volume in his pocket. Now he went there, but when he had sat himself down in a spot to which he was accustomed, he had no need to take out his Horace. His own thoughts came to him free enough without any need of his looking for them to poetry. After all, was not Mrs. Baggett's teaching a damnable philosophy? Let the man be the master and let him get everything he can for himself and enjoy to the best of his ability all that he can get? That was the lesson as taught by her. But as he sat alone there beneath the trees, he told himself that no teaching was more damnable. Of course it was the teaching by which the world was kept going in its present course, but when divested of its plumage, was it not absolutely the philosophy of selfishness? Because he was a man, and as a man had power and money and capacity to do the things after which his heart lusted, he was to do them for his own gratification, let the consequences be what they might to one whom he told himself that he loved? Did the lessons of Mrs. Baggett run smoothly with those of Jesus Christ? Then, within his own mind, he again took Mrs. Baggett's side of the question. How mean a creature must he not become, if he were now to surrender this girl, whom he was anxious to make his wife? He knew of himself that in such a matter he was more sensitive than others. He could not let her go, and then walk forth, as though little or nothing were the matter with him. Now, for the second time in his life, he had essayed to marry, and now for the second time all the world would know that he had been accepted and then rejected. It was, he thought, more than he could endure and live. Then, after he had sat there for an hour, he got up and walked home, and as he went he tried to resolve that he would reject the philosophy of Mrs. Baggett and accept the other. If I only knew, he said as he entered his own gate, if one could only see clearly. Then he found Mary still seated in the garden. Nothing is to be got, he said, by asking you for an answer. In what have I failed? Never mind, let us go in and have a cup of tea. But she knew well in what he accused her of failing, 
and her heart turned towards him again. End of chapter 16 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina